Hello and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Hassan Galadari. I'm an American board certified dermatologist who lives and practices in Dubai, the United Arab Emirates. And this is part of the podcast series for the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology podcasts. And with me today is none other than Professor Alice Gottlieb, who is a very good friend of mine. And at the same time, before she was a good friend, she was my Jewish mother and still continues to be so. Professor Gottlieb is a clinical professor of the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai and also the medical director of the Department of Dermatology at the Beth Israel Hospital. Alice, how are you today? Well, thank you, and very happy to be interviewed by a former resident and now such an illustrious professor and academician in Dubai. Thank you so much, Alice. Well, I have to say, if it wasn't for all your efforts more than 15 years ago, I would not be here where I am right now. All right, so uh, the podcast that we're going to be discussing today is going to be about a recent publication of yours in the JAD, where you discuss axial uh, cirrhotic arthritis. But before we get into that, I just wanted to kind of have a few questions initially about the incidence of uh, cirrhotic arthritis in patients with psoriasis. I'm delighted to be talking with you about this article, which I should also mention Joe Moroller is a co-author, and he is also one of the only room derms in the country. So it's a pleasure to be working with him too. So psoriatic arthritis is the most common comorbidity of psoriasis. It occurs in roughly 30 to 50% of patients with psoriasis. In 84% of patients, the skin disease precedes the joint disease by about 12 years. So we do have a warning sign of who's at risk for psoriatic arthritis. It's a patient with psoriasis. Mm -hmm. Important to note that although it's more common to have psoriatic arthritis when you have moderate or severe disease, about 25% of patients with mild skin disease have psoriatic arthritis. So it's important to ask every patient at every visit about symptoms of psoriatic arthritis. Okay. And people who develop psoriatic arthritis, we know there are different types and you are gonna get into one of them, which is the axial, but can you just tell us about all the different types of psoriatic arthritis that are out there that people should know, or the things that should, they should be looking for when doing a physical examination? There are six domains of psoriatic arthritis. One is peripheral arthritis. One of them is enthesitis, which is inflammation at the ligamentous or tendon insertions into bones, such as plantar fasciitis, Achilles tendonitis. Another common spot is here on the medial and lateral epicondyles. Dactylitis is inflammation of the entire digit, be it a toe or be it a finger. And so it's like sausage digits is another name for that. Axial disease, which is disease of the spine and sacroiliac joints. So that's four of the six domains I've just mentioned. And the two other domains are skin domains. It's nails and skin. Okay. And psoriatic arthritis, if you want, these are criteria that of mole and right, if you want to look at subtypes, there's axial disease, which we're going to talk about today. There's peripheral arthritis. There's predominantly distal interphalangeal joint involvement. There's a symmetric bilateral inflammatory arthritis that looks to the audience like a rheumatoid arthritis, except they have signs of psoriasis. That one is more common in women. 
Mm. I think I've mentioned the five Molin right subtypes. Yes, yes, you did. So no, you, you did mention axial psoriatic arthritis, and this is the topic that we're going to be discussing today. So what is axial psoriatic arthritis? So axial psoriatic arthritis is an inflammatory arthritis of the spine. Uh, and it goes all the way from the top to the bottom. It's often associated with sacroiliitis, which is inflammation of the sacroiliac joints. And what, what kind of symptoms would somebody have? They'd have back pain that's more prominent when they're not moving than when they are, especially at night. You'll ask, does it wake you up at night? It wakes them up at night. It usually wakes them up toward the mid to later sleep hours at night. It can be sacred itis can present with alternate buttock pain. But the main point is it's an inflammatory arthritis where the stiffness lasts more than 30 minutes and is much more common at rest, especially at night, generally relieved by action and activity. When it comes to different people developing it from all the different domains, how common is it? Pure axial psoriatic arthritis in the absence of inflammatory bowel disease too, occurs in about 5% of static arthritis patients. If, however, you have inflammatory bowel disease in addition to psoriasis, your risk for axial disease and sacroiliitis bumps up quite a bit, somewhere between 20 and 50%. It's a very, it's certainly around 20%. Okay. And is there any predisposition, whether you're a male or female, that, you know, in terms of developing uh, axial psoriatic arthritis? It used to be thought that men get it. But it's apparently not true. I mean, that if you, if you ask, it's just not true. In pediatric psoriatic arthritis, boys tend to get the axial disease more so than girls. Girls tend to get more regular psoriatic arthritis, but we're not talking about children. But the right answer on the test, so to speak, is that men and women can equally get axial psoriatic arthritis. And that's new. When I was training, that was not thought to be true. Okay. And when it comes to developing it, the person who gets it, does he have to have a history of psoriasis or he could just develop it on its own? You don't have to have a history of psoriasis. However, both people do. I think if you have absolutely no psoriasis, it gets to be a little esoteric, but then how do you distinguish it from ankylosing spondylitis? And so one might argue, does it matter <laughs> anyway, because they're treated very similarly but then that becomes actually difficult for rheumatologists to deal with. Then you're talking about MRIs and relatively sophisticated testing. Okay. And for people who do develop axial psoriatic arthritis, do they have any other psoriatic arthritis or is it just axial, purely axial? No, axial disease can occur with all of or none of the domains that we talked about earlier. So you can see it In fact, it's more common when you have people who already have peripheral psoriatic arthritis, certainly more common that their spine is also involved. So the answer is yes, you can see it with all the types of psoriatic arthritis. And in fact, having peripheral arthritis makes you increased risk of having axial disease. All right. So you just mentioned risks, and this is important because I wanted to ask you about the risk factors for developing axial psoriatic arthritis. What are they apart from the one that you just mentioned right now? The biggest risk factor for psoriatic arthritis in general is having a first-degree apparent, first-degree relative apparent who has psoriatic arthritis. It increases your chances, I think, by 39-fold. It's by far the biggest risk factor. Having inflammatory bowel disease puts you at increased risk for having axial disease. Having HLA-B27 puts you at increased risk for having axial disease. If you see somebody with uveitis, 
And then you should definitely look for axial disease because uveitis is more common in people with axial disease. Obviously, having psoriatic arthritis and psoriasis is a risk factor for axial disease. Right. How about other things, you know, like that are risk factors for psoriasis itself? Like, for example, of a person who's heavy set, who's got high blood pressure, would those be considered also risk factors for people developing axial psoriatic arthritis or any psoriatic arthritis? To, to, be? to the extent that axial psoriatic arthritis is one of the domains of psoriatic arthritis, obesity, metabolic syndrome, increased cardiovascular risk are comorbidities of psoriatic arthritis and axial arthritis. Whether they cause it is not clear. But. All right. Now you mentioned one of the criteria that you may, may use to diagnose axial psoriatic arthritis was the stiffness that they develop once they're, for example, sleeping and the, the pain that they do develop. So I just wanted to ask you about the quality of life. I mean, if a person is going to have to be, wake up at night complaining of pain, there's definitely an effect on the quality of life there. So what's the impact or has that been looked at? Yes. What is the impact on quality of life? There are various quality of life instruments and patient reported outcome measures. And, and indeed, some of them are actually used as primary endpoints in clinical trials, right? Because you won't see a swollen axial joint, right? I mean, it doesn't, right? It's and, and ditto for sacroiliitis. So actually, primary endpoints are patient reported outcome measures. And so the answer is yes, it has impact on daily tasks of living, on sleep, on fatigue? So the answer is yes, and there are various instruments that measure it. Okay, and is it important as a clinician to look at this when you look at a patient and talk to him or her when they do have a history of axial psoriatic arthritis? Is it something that, as a dermatologist, should I need that little tool or a scale to kind of look into the quality of life just to see if, you know, if my, my treatments are working maybe? So I can answer this question technically and not technically. Okay, once you make the diagnosis of psoriatic arthritis clinically, okay, and, and you can use a five-question questionnaire called the PEST, which is available for free on the GRAPPA, G-R-A-P-P-A app. And if they have three or more answers positive, then you, you think they have psoriatic arthritis. And what you can do then, and remember, so far the doctor hasn't been involved at all. Pest can be given in the waiting room. It can be given online. If it's positive, then there's a test called the PSED, which is in a 12-question instrument that if you have a score of over four and over, you have an unacceptable score. And if you're less than four, you're acceptable. That also can be given to the patient in the waiting room online so that if you have a pest-positive patient whose score is less than four, your treatment, whatever it is, or no treatment is okay. If you have a score higher than four, I always forget whether the four is the cutoff or less than the four, so I'd have to look it up. But if you have a score greater than four, it means, no, you're not doing a good job. So I've just described a treat-to-target strategy that doesn't involve the doctor at all. It's something that can be incredibly valuable and not increase your time and your overhead. But boy, what a good deed you do for somebody by actually treating to target. And so that PSET is also available on that same GRAPA app for free. So you, that's a useful test. The specific ones in a derm practice for ankylosing spondylitis outcome measures, derms are not going to do it. Rheumatologists don't even do it. But we know in practice that how often we decide whether the treatment is working is, is the patient happy? I mean, 
patient's unhappy, you're going to find a different treatment anyway. But I would suggest that dermatologists be acquainted with the pest and the PSED. No extra work on your part. You can help diagnose and treat to target psoriatic arthritis. That's really good. I mean, that's a very helpful. Thank you so much for that. I've got this clinical scenario. So if a person comes to you and he's got psoriasis, now he's complaining of the back pain and the stiffness and so forth, and you wanted to make the diagnosis of axial psoriatic arthritis, what would you do? How do you make the diagnosis? Is it a purely clinical one or do you send them for images? What is it that we do? As opposed to the peripheral arthritis, where the CASPAR criteria really don't require lab testing, to make a of psoriatic arthritis, you're often getting an MRI. And unless a dermatologist feels comfortable in doing that, you're probably better off asking your rheumatology colleague to help you. And let's say you, the patient doesn't have psoriatic arthritis and they have another cause of it. You're still doing them a good service and they still need a rheumatologist. So the big mistake is not doing anything about it, not asking, not acting upon it. So it's important to be sensitive, it's less important to be specific. But the answer to your question is in axial disease, you're often getting imaging. That's not so true in peripheral arthritis, but it certainly is true for axial disease. HLA-B27 is only moderately helpful. In ankylosing spondylitis and reactive arthritis, you expect you know 95% or so of patients to have a positive test. However, in here, the, the positivity is really quite low. It's around 20% or so. And so a positive helps you, but a negative doesn't eliminate it. If it costs a lot of money, you don't have to do it unless you're thinking about ankylosing spondylitis. But that's not the derm role to do that. By this point, if you're distinguishing between ankylosing spondylitis and psoriatic arthritis, you need a rheumatologist to help you out there. We'll come up with what makes up the team a little bit later on. But before we do that, I wanted to ask you about the treatment options. So we come up with a diagnosis. How would we treat now a person who has axial disease? So first of all, it's important to treat because delay in diagnosis, let's say for psoriatic arthritis in general, a delay in diagnosis for six months already means increased disability, increased deformity, poor quality of life. So we play a critical role in diagnosing psoriatic arthritis. And so please don't skip that question because you're doing a great disservice to your patient if you don't ask. All right, and so then it's also true for axial disease. So the initial treatment is non-steroidals are effective and also physical therapy because you want to keep range of motion. Otherwise they're you know, going to be bent over and have you know, limited range of motion in many aspects of their musculoskeletal system. What you do not do is, in, so let's say that doesn't work, okay? And neither non-steroidals or physical therapy change the natural history of the disease, all right? So non-steroidals don't. So let's say that doesn't work. What you do not do next, and I mean a big N-O-T, is methotrexate. Methotrexate does not work. And I have running arguments with insurance companies when they want me to use methotrexate before a biologic for axial disease. It's just wrong. I mean, the American College of Rheumatology has stated that outright in their guidelines. Even the European guidelines say it's not a good idea. So don't use it, okay? Now, when we talk about biologics, the two best classes are the TNF blockers and the IL-17 blockers. TNF blockers, the one I would probably not use is etanercept. And we're just focusing on axial disease right now. You're talking about adalimumab, talking about sertolizumab and infliximab. 
all of them are FDA approved for ankylosing spondylitis. And it's inferred that it works for psoriatic arthritis. Technically, they did not test the spinal involvement in psoriatic arthritis. They're also approved for psoriatic arthritis, but peripheral disease was measured and they're approved for psoriasis. And I think the derms know that each of them have different properties. In terms of peripheral arthritis, all the three that I mentioned, they improve signs and symptoms, inhibit radiographic progression and improve quality of life. We do know that they obviously are different molecules and infliximab is given by IV and the other two are sub-Q. And we also know that they work differently on the skin. I mean, so, so, but we're not talking about the skin involvement right now. Okay, so that's TNF blockers. You have two IL-17 blockers that are FDA approved also for psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis and ankylosing spondylitis. That's secukinumab and ixekizumab. Brodalumab didn't pursue any PSA data past a single phase two study. So they're technically not approved for psoriatic arthritis. I would like to point out that the only drug and the only biologic that has actually studied axial disease in psoriatic arthritis patients is secukinumab. And that's maximized study. And that is a multi-center, double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled study that shows that uh, secukinumab works uh, much better than placebo in axial disease. So if you're doing based on evidence-based medicine only, you would pick secukinumab. It's the only one that has a study as good as that. And so, so if I have someone with axial disease, if they have inflammatory bowel disease, then TNF blocker is the first choice and you can't use IL-17 blockers. If they don't have inflammatory bowel disease, I prefer to use an IL-17 blocker before a TNF blocker. Why? Because it works better on the skin and they work equally well, at least on the peripheral joints. And that's been shown. There've been dead on comparator studies with ICSI versus adalimumab and with secukinumab versus adalimumab. And they work better on the skin and they work equally well as adalimumab on the joints, which is measuring mainly peripheral arthritis. And I'll point out secukinumab actually has a separate, very high quality study on axial psoriatic arthritis. Um, the IL-23 blockers I haven't mentioned because uh, eustachinumab failed in axial disease, so you should not use eustachinumab. And the IL-23 blockers you have, juzelkumab is FDA approved for psoriatic arthritis, again, mainly peripheral disease. And at the psoriasis dosing, they did not get inhibition of radiographic progression. At every four-week dosing, they did get it, but the FDA didn't give them every four-week dosing. Rizinkizumab, all I'm aware of is a press release that the signs and symptoms control looks good. However, they did not inhibit radiographic progression to a greater extent than placebo. So I would, and they, they didn't study axial disease at all. Juzelkumab studied axial disease a little bit, but it needs more work. So if I, would, if I needed to use an IL-23 blocker, I would use Juzelkumab over the other ones. There is fertilducuzumab, a PSA study, and it looks good, but they didn't study axial disease at all. Well, I got to say, Alice, I mean, this is a wonderful summary here. And you just proved in the last 10 minutes why they call you the uh, mother of biologics. 
<laughs> now, since we're talking about biologics, I mean, to make it even more relevant, how would you start a person in the COVID times? I mean, what would you do? Do you ask them for a test first? How would you do it? If somebody has active COVID disease, I'm not starting them on anything. I'm referring them to the right people to treat their disease. If they are just walking or if they have a history of having had COVID or they're COVID anxious, the data from registries and multiple publications, including most recently in the JAD, but also been from the British registry, is that there is no deleterious effect of TNF blockers, IL-17 blockers, or IL-23 blockers in COVID. So I would not change it. The only biologic that I'm very wary of, and that has nothing to do with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis, is rituximab because rituximab kills B cells. No B cells, no antibodies. It's a bad idea in COVID not to be able to mount an antibody response. And so in, in my autoimmune blistering diseases, I try very hard in this COVID era to withhold rituximab unless I'm forced to. But what about in terms of vaccination? So if a person is thinking about getting vaccinated, would you change the biologics in any way? So there is no specific experiment with COVID vaccination and any of the biologics. So I can't really answer your question. Most of the biologics have done some kind of study where they use mainly looking at secondary immune responses. They look at tetanus toxoid and they show that the antibody titers are not generally different. There's some data that if you combine with methotrexate, they're lower, but it doesn't really answer the question because COVID is a primary immune response, not a secondary immune response. And, very few of them have good studies in that regard. So, um, or they test against pneumococcal vaccine, which is a T cell independent vaccine, which is not relevant either. So the simple answer to your question is we don't really know, but based on experiments with tetanus and pneumococcal antigen, and some people have primary immune response data with KLH, there doesn't seem to be a big difference, but I can't really answer the question because no one's done it specifically. But first of all, I tell all my patients, get your COVID vaccine. And when they refuse, I tell them, I really try again. Remember, I'm a Jewish mother. I have no trouble insisting on being insistent. And so I just think it's a huge mistake not to get your COVID vaccine. I agree with you. Well, Alice, I mean, not, not all of us are lucky to be a dermatologist and a rheumatologist. So when it comes to putting together a, a team that looks at people taking care of people with axial psoriatic arthritis, who comprises that team? Well, the dermatologist plays an important role. They're probably the first one to pick it up if they ask. The second person on the team is a rheumatologist. You should get a rheumatologist involved. Unless, of course, if you're treating, let's say you treat with an IL-17 blocker or a TNF blocker, you're treating their skin and all of a sudden their back pain goes away. But yes, a rheumatologist should be involved. For making a diagnosis of axial disease, you often are getting imaging, specifically MRIs. And so let the rheumatologist, because most germs don't even have any idea what to order. And so that would be important. I think if they have axial disease, so radiologist is part of that team. Other part is physical therapy. I think many of these patients will need physical therapy. Now, the germ doesn't direct that usually. The rheumatologist directs that. Those are the four that come to mind immediately. If it's a pediatric, of course, you need primary care, and you'd be surprised how few people I have who have their own primary care doctor because they have comorbidities that need to be managed by primary care. Well, Alice, thank you so much for being a part of this and for accepting this invitation yeah, to be sure. a, 
a part of the podcast. I mean, for me, it is a pleasure to see you and to talk to you. I mean, it's been a long time and I, I love how we you know we've gone full circle and I'm back here again. In, I don't know if you want to call it quiz you or things like that, but you know, it, it was fun talking to you about the subject. Should I tell them the story of how when I first, when you were my, you're my first continuity resident when I was up. <laughs> Do you want me to tell them? Yeah, you can. <laughs> okay, so here are my first day in clinic. And here's my first, you know, third year continuity resident. So we go in the room and see a patient. And my resident, Hassan Galadari, asked me, what's the differential diagnosis? <laughs> <laughs> and luckily, I had put Haley-Haley disease in the differential because that's what the patient had. And so then I said, okay, give it, why don't you try acetretin? And then he, my darling resident said, there's no evidence-based medicine on that. And so I said, you make the evidence-based medicine. And so we did treat with acetretin, gave him the rationale, and he wrote up a paper on it. So he created the evidence-based medicine. And I think a lot of people use acetretin for Haley Haley disease. Absolutely, absolutely. So that well, was I'll... Hassanala. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for being a part of this. And it's always a pleasure. I'm looking forward for future podcasts with you for sure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Good luck to everybody. Be happy. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcast. We hope you enjoyed these new options for listening to dialogues and the increased content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.